Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The subject of our discussion this evening is on the humanity of the Son. And of course, uh, the humanity of the Son of God is one of those topics that I guess has generated a lot of discussion and debate over the years and which human nature did Christ have and what he didn't have and so on. I'm not going to be going into all those details as such tonight. I'm going to look at it from hopefully a different perspective that uh, maybe will help us appreciate a little bit more uh, the importance of the humanity of the Son of God. But uh, obviously in talking about this topic, uh, I, I run a risk of maybe uh, upsetting or offending someone or saying something that you might not necessarily agree with. So uh, all I ask is uh, that you hear me out. And if you have any comment or correction, I'll be happy to hear from you uh, afterward at the end. Well, as we just sang the theme song of, of the camp, and of course the, the theme has to do with Christ being the, the one who gives us this wonderful water of life to come and drink from that water. It's given to us freely without money and without price. And there is a reason that qualifies Christ to be that to us. And this has to do with his humanity. That's what I want to look at this evening. That's what I want to spend some time looking at. Because uh, the claim is made that the humanity of the Son of God is everything to us as a people. We want to see why is this claim so? What does that mean? So we want to examine that a little bit because it's really the golden chain that binds us to him. Why is his humanity so important that it is said to be everything to us as a people. Of course, the entire gospel is centered in one person. It's centered in the person of Jesus Christ, and particularly in his identity. In his identity as the Son of God, and his identity as the Son of Man. As a matter of fact, the four gospel accounts actually build on that foundation. The gospel of Matthew, of course, Matthew writing his gospel <coughs> to, the, to the Jews, he begins with the genealogy of Christ, right? Sometimes we skip over the first few books, a uh, few uh, verses or maybe chapter or so in Matthew because it goes through all this list of genealogies, of all these names that are hard to pronounce, and we think this is really a boring start to the book. Let's get to the story. But the reason why Matthew is going to that detail is he's emphasizing something, that this man who came was really the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's establishing his humanity and his lineage. Luke does the same thing through the line of Mary. And so you have Matthew and Luke establishing the foundation that he is the son of man. He is a human being, just like us. He's, he's, he's descended from humans, just like each and every one of us has. And uh, of course, before he became the son of man, he already was the son of God, as we all believe, or maybe should believe, because that's the foundation for the other one. And of course, the other two gospel writers establish at the beginning of their gospel, that's Mark and John, they establish the foundation of Christ as the Son of God. I want to put that up, and uh, we have this complete picture from all four gospels. As we said, Matthew and Luke, they emphasize his human genealogy and demonstrate he is the Son of Man. Mark begins his gospel by saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his divine genealogy. 
It's not very long because he's the son of God. That's it. You don't need a long list. That's what he says. And in John 1, 1, of course, we all know. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's his divine genealogy. Establishing him as the son of God. And so he is both the son of God and the son of man. Interesting how those four gospels begin on that foundation. So tonight we want to focus a little bit on his humanity. I'm not going to go into details about him being the son of God. Uh, that's for another time to discuss. In uh, the prophecies of Christ coming as a man, as a human being, for mankind, uh, one of the outstanding points that is mentioned time and again is referring to Christ as the seed, the seed of the woman. That he would come, he would be this seed, this glorious seed. And that one day he would come and he would take on Satan face to face or the serpent. And he would deal with this problem that Satan has brought into this world. That Christ was going to actually reverse the defeat of humanity that was suffered in the Garden of Eden. This is the burden of the prophecies. And part of Christ doing that was the requirement that he would actually be one of us as a human being. Moses, for example, says it this way in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Of course, this prophecy identifies Christ as coming from us. One of our brethren. Not, of course, he was speaking to the Israelites. He would be, he would be of the seed of the woman. He would be of the nation of the Jews, but he's a human being. He is a brother to us. But not only is he a brother to us, he is our elder brother. He is our next of kin. That's the point that is made here. And of course, when the fullness of time came, the Bible says God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. A real human being like us in every way except sin. That should resolve all the human nature of Christ's debate. He is like us in every way, except sin. And of course, this uh, is mentioned as well in, uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. We often refer to Christ as the second Adam. And that's true because he comes after the first Adam. But the second Adam is not a biblical term, actually. The, the term that the Bible uses is the last Adam. Now, it's not wrong to say the second Adam. But the point that is made here, he is the last Adam. He is the final word when it comes to this sin problem. He is the last and final and ultimate solution. He's the last Adam. And as our brother, he was made... A quickening spirit. That means a life-giving spirit. His coming as the last Adam was for the purpose of giving life. He is a quickening spirit. A human being who would be able to give life. Now tonight when I emphasize uh, Christ and I, and I emphasize his humanity, I don't want us for one minute to forget that all the while, while he was here on earth as well, he was always the son of God. But tonight I want to emphasize his humanity. So I'm not going to keep mentioning that he's the son of God every time. But I want you to keep that in mind, okay? Uh, because the emphasis on his humanity is of great, great significance for us. That's the point that the scriptures is making. That he is this last Adam. He is the final father of the redeemed. 
That's what Adam indicates, that he is a father. That's why the prophecies also refer to him as the everlasting father. And he is the last everlasting father. He's the last Adam. His, uh, his uh, accomplishments are the final and permanent solution, as we said, to the problem of sin. And as the last Adam, he begets us into his family by bestowing upon us this quickening spirit, by imparting to us this quickening spirit. That's how we are, that's how we join this family of the last Adam. It's a brand new family with a brand new head, the last Adam. His humanity, brothers and sisters, is the basis for this. In order to give us this, he first had to be one of us. That's what Moses had indicated. And of course, when we talk here about the quickening spirit, I think we all know that refers to the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit that proceeds from the only begotten Son of God. That's what we're talking about here. And of course, the reason why he gives us life, and the reason why what we needed the most is life, is because when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they brought into the human family death. Or in other words, the loss of life. So there needed to be a new source of life. That's why Christ has made this last Adam, to come and give humanity life. And uh, of course, I think I mentioned that the other night, the only antidote for death is life, right? I want us to keep that point in mind. Too many times we... we we, uh, I think, confuse the gospel when we make the gospel certain things that we have to believe or certain doctrines we have to adhere to, certain teachings we have to understand a certain way. All these things are good and important, are in their place. But these things are not the solution to death. You realize that? The way you interpret the Bible does not solve the sin and death problem in your life. The only solution to the death and sin problem in your life, in the, in the stream of humanity, the only solution is the life that comes from the last Adam. And life is a real thing. Life is not a theory. It's not a concept. It is not a particular doctrine. You with me? So I'm not minimizing doctrines, but we need to put them in the right place. We're not saved based on how we interpret Scripture. We're saved if only we have the life of the last Adam. And of course, this is how the gospel writers proclaimed it when Christ came. Matthew 4.16 says, The people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Beautiful, beautiful description of the condition of humanity when the Son of God came to become the Son of Man. He came to a place where darkness and death reigned. And He came to be that great Light. Now, what does light mean? I think we all know in John it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. So what, we, what Matthew is talking about here, this light is really life. The life that the Son of God came to bring as the Son of Man, as the last Adam, as a human being. He came to give that. And at that time, all of humanity is pictured as sitting where? in darkness, under the reign of death. Very important point because the contrast is very significant. If the Son of God had not come to be the Son of Man, humanity could only continue under the reign of death. It would only continue in darkness. We needed that light of life that came by the last Adam. 
That's why everybody in the entire uh, history of the world, particularly those who are familiar with the prophecies, were waiting and looking forward to the time when this light would come. And this light, of course, came, as Matthew says here, with the coming of Christ. He was that shining light. John refers to him in this way in John chapter 1 and verse 9. In John 1, 9, he says, That was the true light, referring to Christ, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Here is the time when the darkness was going to see a great light. Now, this text uh, has been misunderstood sometimes. And uh, the point that's misunderstood in this text sometimes is the expression here that says, uh, every man that cometh into the world. And sometimes some people have included that uh, Christ is the light that lights everyone that comes into the world. In other words, everyone comes into the world lit up by Christ. You with me? Uh, now, this is a bit of a misunderstanding of the text, because when we're born into this world from the family of the first Adam, that's not the new birth, right? That's not the birth into the family of the last Adam. It takes faith to be born into the family of the last Adam. So what's this verse really saying? Well, if we compare it in a few other translations, it, it clears it up uh, quite easily. Here it is from the CEV. The true light that shines on everyone was coming into the world. So the coming into the world is actually referring to the coming of Christ. It is because of Christ that every man, at the point when they will believe, they can receive this light of life. Let's read another translation just to make sure. Uh, there was the true light, even the light, which lighteth every man coming into the world. It was Christ who was coming into the world. And his coming would be that beacon of light and hope for every other human being. That is the whole point of what the gospel here says. So uh, I want, just wanted to clarify that. You know, when we're born into the family of the first Adam, that's not when we receive the light, right? We can only receive from the first Adam, death. That's all the first birth gives us. A dying life. That is why we need a new birth or a new life. The last Adam is the source of that. In uh, John chapter 5, one day Jesus was speaking. This is what he says, verse 24 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. What is Christ referring to here? He's referring to that point when, for the person, they will be lit up by Christ. And that point is when they hear his words. Now, when we talk about the word of Christ, I think uh, we all know the verses. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are what? Spirit and life. So we're not just referring to the sound that comes out of his mouth or the word that might be written in the Bible, but we're referring to the living word of Christ, which is life. What is this hour when all the dead that are in the graves shall hear the voice of the Son of God? What's that referring to? Usually we think it's referring to some kind of resurrection, and we understand the resurrection to be when? The second coming. But notice what Jesus says. The hour is coming, and what? And now is. So what does that mean? He's not referring to a future time. He's referring to when? When he was here on earth, he's telling them, listen. All these people that are sitting in darkness, that are sitting in the reign of death, 
are going to hear my voice, and they that hear are going to, to live. In other words, they will pass from death to, to life. You know, death is what condition? Death is not only people in the grave, you know that? Death is people who are sitting where? In darkness, who only possess the life that comes from the first Adam. They are considered as under death because they don't have a life that will live forever. They have a life that will is a dying life. Jesus says, when they hear my voice, they will move, they will pass from death unto life. He illustrated physically what he means by actually resurrecting some people in his ministry on earth as an illustration and as a figure of what he means here spiritually to all those who believe. You with me? This is why the Bible says the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. He was that light when he came as a man, as a human being. He came to bring us life as a human being. After all, the Bible says that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is all about, is to know the Father and the Son. That's the light that lights this world. And of course, he also had to deal with that problem of death, and he dealt with it in Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 tells us that. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is the significant aspect here. The point that Paul is emphasizing is Christ accomplished this as one of us, as a man. He himself likewise took part of the same. And then as a man, he dealt with death. He actually died. And the purpose of his dying was to destroy who? Satan, him that had the power of death. And to deliver all those who were under the reign of death, who were living in fear and bondage to death. This is why, or this is one of the reasons why he had to come as a man. He would not be able to die unless he came as a man. Isn't that right? That's why he came as one of us. He took on our human nature, our, our flesh. And as one of us, he died and dealt with the death problem. In our place. Very significant point. Hopefully it'll start coming together because you might be thinking, well, this brother is talking about all these things I already know. But I want to build a foundation to get somewhere. It's his humanity, brothers and sisters. It's his humanity that qualified him to do a lot of these things that we're reading about here. Some of which would have been totally impossible had he not taken on humanity. You realize that? As we shall see, hopefully, as, as, we, as we go along. Uh, of course, this was the burden, like I said, this was the burden of the, of the prophecies all through the Old Testament. That the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would be the seed, that the Messiah would be uh, the Savior, he would be the Redeemer, he would deal with the death problem, he would die for his people, he would bear their iniquities. All these aspects was the burden of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that Christ would come and accomplish all these things as a man. I want to emphasize that tonight. If you get anything from tonight's study, it's the humanity of Christ. As a man, he had to deal with all these things as the Savior of the world. Of course, uh, this plan of salvation, of him becoming the Savior of the world, is not something that uh, God decided to uh, 
think about and do after Adam fell. It was a plan that was devised long before, as we, I think we all understand. And the book of Revelation uh, refers to that in uh, chapter 13 and verse 8. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it's that last part of the verse that we usually refer to and we talk about often. Isn't that right? We talk about Christ being the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What's this re- the verse referring to? Again, this is one of those verses that uh, oftentimes gets misunderstood and misapplied because of the way it's worded and because it's written uh, perhaps in a way to indicate that the lamb was slain before the world was ever created. Now I want to ask you a question. When was the lamb slain? He was slain at one point in the history of the earth at Calvary, on the cross, at Golgotha. So why is this uh, in the book of Revelation written this way? I have to remember that the book of Revelation is a book of symbols and a book of prophecy. It is referring to the promise and the plan that God instituted before the world was, where a promise was made that should man fall, Christ would be the Redeemer. Sometimes we can, you know, over-literalize the verse and, and try and say, well, maybe something died before the foundation of the world when it relates to Christ. Th- that's not what John is referring to here. This is a prophecy. And I think we all know uh, in the spirit of prophecy, we're told that in great controversy, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. Now, of course, in that uh, verse in Revelation, there's a very obvious symbol and figure there. What's the symbol? It is Christ represented as a, as a lamb. And it's represented as a lamb that is slain. So the lamb is a figure, it's a symbol, and his slaying is also figurative and symbolic. It is representative of the time when he would come and actually be slain. It was at one point that the lamb was Slain, And it's important to keep that in mind because misunderstanding that can really throw us off. Hopefully we'll see what I'm talking about in a little while. When Mrs. White says this, this is in direct harmony with uh, William Miller's rules of Bible interpretation. You're familiar with those? Rule number 11 says essentially the same thing. We should take the Bible literally unless an obvious symbol is used. And so we need to remember what's symbolic and what's literal. Uh, First Peter clarifies it for us beautifully. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, talking about our redemption. It says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Here it is clear. Foreordained. He was promised. It was planned in the foreknowledge of God. God had decided and promised to give this son, this lamb, to be one day slain. When would that happen? In these last times. Isn't that right? That's when that slaying was manifested. That's when it actually happened. That's when that promise was realized. That's when that promise was fulfilled. Because brothers and sisters, he could not be slain unless he was first a human being. Correct? That's the whole point. That's why when he was slain, it's significant. We just have to see when did he become a human. He was never a human being in the past, was he? He only became a man when the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Not before. And so the symbol of him being represented as a lamb actually has to do with his humanity. Remember John at the baptism? He said, behold what? 
the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is, of course, the fulfillment of all the prophecies that were given in the types of the sacrifices. You remember? All these sacrifices pointed forward to the Lamb who would come and die. The only way that Christ would die is if he took on humanity. So him fulfilling the symbol of a Lamb is intimately linked with him becoming a human. And not before. So when John's saying, behold the lamb, in other words, he's saying, behold the sacrifice that will take the sin of the world. That sacrifice had to be made by a human being. Because it was human beings who had a sin problem, right? It's a beautiful picture once we see how the prophecies all work together and how Christ had to come and live as a man. Now there is a particular Danger in misunderstanding the humanity of the Son, in misunderstanding this symbology. And this danger I want to allude to just a little bit here, because when we misunderstand the nature of prophecy and the nature and the requirement of what the Son of God had to be, that is a man, in order to be the lamb that is that will be slain or that was slain, uh, that danger is very, very important because... Maybe we'll see it when, when, as I talk about it in a minute, but it is a danger that we are not immune to. That's my point. That's why I want to point it out. It's a danger that we are very prone to falling into. And, uh, and that's that point I want to mention just now. I just want us to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, this. I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. The crucifixion and the death of Christ was impossible so long as he did not have humanity taken upon him. Does, is that clear? Now, you might not agree, that's okay, but I just want to be clear in what I'm saying so you don't misunderstand what I am saying. It was absolutely impossible for the Son of God to die unless he took on humanity. This is a vital pillar in the gospel that we believe. That's why, as we said, the gospel emphasizes humanity to a great extent. I want to read you a couple of statements. And these statements uh, illustrate this danger that we need to watch out for. Here's what it says. Christ is crucified in every man that lives on earth. The difference then between the sinner and the Christian is this, that whereas Christ crucified and risen is in every man, in the sinner he is there unrecognized and ignored, while in the Christian he dwells there by faith. I'm going to tell you who said that statement in a minute. But if you already know, great. You'll know in a minute if you don't. But I want you to think about the words that are spoken here. Is that true or false? I want you to think about it. Maybe don't say it out loud so you don't get embarrassed if you have to change your mind. Is Christ crucified in every man that lives on earth? Yes or no? Think about it. I want you to think about it clearly. I don't want you to, <laughs> I don't want you to yell out. The crucifixion of Christ, brothers and sisters, is an event that happens once. It is not a process that is ongoing forever. I want you to keep that in mind. And we're going to come back to that as well. But notice the next statement, the bigger one that says here, basically the difference between the sinner and the saint is that one recognizes something while the other doesn't. Christ is in the sinner and in the saint equally. The sinner doesn't recognize that but the saint recognizes that. That's what that statement is saying, correct? Now, that is not true, brothers and sisters. Christ is not in the sinner and the saint equally. Christ is not crucified in every man. Christ is not crucified in the sinner. You realize that? 
That's actually an error that tends more towards pantheism or spiritualizing truths that are to be taken as actual. Now, there is a certain sense in which when... Uh, uh, you know, I'll come to that back. I'll come, I don't want to confuse things. But I want us to look at a comment from the Spirit of Prophecy in light of that. And the comment from the Spirit of Prophecy is this one. This is what it says. But God does not live in the sinner. The Word declares that He abides only in the hearts of those who love Him and do righteousness. God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. It is the enemy who abides there. Now that's a very clear statement, right? So then is Christ present in the sinner and the saint alike? No. Is Christ crucified in the sinner? No. Who is dwelling in the heart of the sinner according to spirit prophecy? It is the enemy. So there is a certain error. When we misunderstand the humanity of Christ, when we misunderstand prophecy that will lead us to seek to apply the death and the presence and the sacrifice of Christ as everywhere, at all time, in all people. That is a dangerous and a very serious error. It's also sometimes expressed this way. I want to I clarify that. It's expressed this way that, you know, uh, the life of Christ is in every man. Is the life of Christ in every man? Let me give you some verses and you maybe will clarify. He that hath the Son hath what? Life. Is it possible to not have the Son? Yes. Then what do you have? You don't have life. Where do you dwell? In death and in darkness, correct? So is the life of Christ in every man? No. And that's what the Spirit of Christ is saying here. And, and many times uh, the misunderstanding is that, well, if Christ is in every man and Christ is in the sinner, and when the sinner sins, then Christ is in that sinner experiencing that sin. That's what that statement we read there. Let me go back to that. That's how that statement is explained and understood. That Christ is in every man and Christ is acquainted with all the sins and all the crimes and all the atrocities that are committed. Christ is actually suffering the sins that are committed by the sinner because he is in the sinner. That is not the case, brothers and sisters. It is the enemy who dwells there. What about the Holy Spirit? Okay, of course, the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Let me address that. The Holy Spirit is striving and drawing the hearts of men to accept Christ. It's represented in scriptures as Christ standing at the what? At the door and knocking. Outside, seeking entrance. That's the drawing and working effect of Christ, working on hearts. But Christ only dwells and abides and lives in the heart of the believer. You with me? He that has the Son hath life. That's not everyone. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out, and this might seem like a little bit I'm splitting hairs here, maybe the mixed responses indicate, this is a danger, brothers and sisters, that we need to watch for, that we really, really need to watch for. Let me, uh, let me show you the source of that statement. That statement comes from E.J. Wagner in the book, Glad Tidings. How many people read that book? Okay, a few people, that's good. It's a very good book. Uh, it has a lot of good things, but it also has this misunderstanding. That this misunderstanding actually leads to pantheism. It's like I said, it is this belief that Christ, since he is in every man, therefore Christ is forced and subjected to experience all these sins and atrocities that are ex experienced by, by anyone who is alive. Let me ask you a question. Is Satan alive? Yes. Is Christ in Satan? 
Of course not. <laughs> of course not. And just as the sinner who is imbued by the spirit of Satan commits sins, it is not Christ that is present there, brothers and sisters. It is the enemy, as the servant of the Lord clearly indicated. And so I want to uh, keep that in mind here because it's misunderstanding some of these verses, such as the one that we read in Revelation and such as the one that we read in John 1.9, to think that Christ has been suffering and been crucified and been subjected to all these things and all these sinners all through the history of the world. This goes against the need that Christ had to be a human being before he could actually have that, as we shall see as well. Let's see how, before we go on, actually, the, the warning here is this. <clears throat> this man, Wagner, I have a lot of respect for Wagner. I don't want to put him up here and paint him in a false light. But this is something that we need to watch for. Wagner was used by God to bring the 1888 message. But Wagner was not infallible, right? He was a human being and he made mistakes. This is one of his mistakes. Now here is the key, brothers and sisters. Wagner believed the truth about God. And he fell into pantheistic teachings. So is that, a war, is that a danger that we can fall into? Yes. He wasn't Trinitarian when he said these things. But his concept was actually akin to the Trinity. You know about the, the, the Catholic concept of Christ being eternally begotten? You know how the Catholics believe, like, they, they try and stick with the scriptures. Well, I'm going to explain it just in case you don't know it. But the belief of the Catholics, or the Catholic Church, that Christ is begotten, they refer to it as the eternal generation. In that, the Christ was not begotten from his Father at one point. It wasn't one event. It's an ongoing process that has never started and will never end, but goes on and on and on. Now, if you have trouble understanding that, you're not the only one. I have no clue what they're talking about. But that's their belief. That's how they express it. That, that this, uh, this eternal generation is how Christ is continually, ongoing, proceeding from the Father. A never-ending process. That's not true. Christ was begotten of the Father at one point. He became the Son of God. That point is in the past, in the long past. You with me? It's not something that keeps on going. But this is the danger here. To Wagner, the cross was not an event only, but it was this ongoing process that happened from the beginning and ongoingly through every sinner and still going on. You with me? And in that sense, it is akin to that particular aspect, the eternal generation, that Christ is crucified in every man. The Apostle Paul has this beautiful verse that clarifies that for us. In Hebrews 9 <clears throat> and verse 26. Hebrews 9, 26. He says, speaking of Christ, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. According to Paul, how many times did Christ suffer? Once. He doesn't suffer ongoingly, continually, from the beginning, crucified in every man. The crucifixion, he says here, is something that happened once. Otherwise, let me read the next verse. <clears throat> in verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto... Salvation. The emphasis here, Paul is saying, Christ was offered only once. He did not have to suffer all the time being offered 
being slain or being crucified all the time, his sacrifice is only once and that is sufficient. This is in contrast to the priests who offered ongoing and continual sacrifices, which were deficient, which could not take away sin. He's saying we have this sacrifice. And if that, and because of that, that sacrifice that happened once, because it is so sufficient, he did not have to suffer on and on and on and on. The fact that Paul is making here, the point that Paul is making here is this. The sacrifice of Christ is so far-reaching, is so effective, is so all-fulfilling that it only needed to be offered once. And that's it. You with me? That's his point here. That's why he says in the previous verse, he must not have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but once. Ongoing or once? That's the contrast here. Now, I want to pinpoint something here. Does that mean Christ was not suffering before he came to the cross? No, of course he was. You know, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that God is grieved in his heart by the hardness of men when he saw the earth, the wickedness of the men on the earth, and he was sorry in his heart that he made men. Sin has hurt the heart of God. It has caused pain and suffering to heaven. But the suffering that the Son of God experienced as the Son of Man, he only experienced when he became a man. And that's the suffering to death, the suffering that dealt with sin. You, you see the contrast here? I don't want us to miss uh, the point. Here's how he says it as well. Paul, again, same book, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. When did he learn obedience by the things that he suffered? When he was a man. As a human being, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And he reached the point of being made perfect. That's why he does not need to experience that suffering again. Because he has been made perfect. You see, the, the key here again is this. To say that Christ needs to suffer again in the same way implies that he is not made perfect, right? Paul says here, listen, he went through this experience he has been made perfect. That's why he doesn't need to go through it again. He doesn't need to suffer again. He doesn't need to go through all this trial again and again and again. In other words, he is not crucified in every man. He is not slain in every man. You with me? That's an event that happened once. We receive that benefit when we believe. Brothers and sisters, when Christ came as a human being, he gained something that he never had before. You realize that? That's what this verse is talking about. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. What does that mean? He wasn't obedient before? No, of course he was. But as a man taking on fallen humanity, going through our experience with dealing with sin, he learned by experience, day in and day out, he learned the meaning of what it is to be obedient. And he perfected that. You with me? He could not learn that. He could not experience that. He could not achieve that unless he first became a human being just like us. Born of a woman. Born, as it says in the scriptures, of the seed of Abraham. Of the seed of David. Do you, do you maybe begin to realize the importance of the humanity of the Son of God? 
It is very, very important. That's how he achieved all these things. That's what enabled him to do all these things. <clears throat> of course, the ultimate suffering that Christ experienced when he was here on earth is the suffering of dealing with sin, dealing with temptation, is that suffering that in the garden caused him to say, Lord, I don't want to drink the cup, but not my will, but thy will be done. And finally, he experienced the suffering of separation from God. And brothers and sisters, he does not need to experience that anymore because he said it is finished. It is finished. He said to John when he appeared to him in, on the island of Patmos, he says, John, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He doesn't die anymore. He doesn't die in people anymore. He doesn't experience temptation anymore. He doesn't experience separation from God anymore. Correct? That happened once, and he perfected that. Now, I don't want us to say to think, oh, are you saying Christ doesn't suffer now? No, Christ is pained and hurt day in and day out by the rejection that he receives, by the sin and woe that keeps going on in the world, by unbelief. These things pain and hurt his heart, but that is not the suffering that he experienced as a human being. You with me? You see the distinction? That is something that happened once. Praise God for that. The fact that it doesn't need to happen again means it was all sufficient to accomplish salvation for you and me. That's the humanity of the Son, brothers and sisters. And so I just want us to distinguish between those two because this danger is something that we need to watch out for. Like I said, it is something that happened to people who believe just like you and I believe in the truth about God. It is when we misread or misunderstand things about prophecy and things that have to do with the humanity of the Son. It's, it's basically when we don't perhaps realize that His humanity and Him as a human is what was needed to experience these things and to go through these things. When we disassociate the two, then we can easily say, well, He could have been experiencing all these things all the time. He only took on humanity once when He came as a man. Why did Christ have to become a man. There's many reasons. I have a short list that deals with what we covered so far a little bit. I'll give you this short list, but there's many, many reasons. First one is to be one of us, to be a brother, like Moses said. Christ could not be our brother as the Son of God only, correct? That happened at one point in the history of mankind. To be the last Adam, of course, I think I spoke about that enough. He did that when he came of the seed of Abraham, to be tempted. Amen. Could Christ be tempted before he became a man? The Bible says God cannot be tempted by evil, correct? So in order for Christ to experience temptation like we experience it, he had to take on humanity in order to deal with sin face to face. Not theoretically, not while sitting in heaven up there, but on the ground, where the rubber meets the road, he came face to face with sin. In order for him to really know what that's like, he had to be a human being. The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us as a people. Not only that, but he had to condemn sin in the flesh. Could he condemn sin in the flesh before he had flesh? Of course not. 
And he had to bear our sins on the tree as a man. In his flesh, the Bible says he bare our sins on the tree. He had to be a human being in order to deal with that. And ultimately to die. Could he die as the son of God? God, the Bible says, cannot die. And God gave his son to have the same life in himself. In order for Christ to die, he had to take on humanity in order to deal, meet death and deal with death. And thereby abolishing death, as the scripture says there in Timothy 1.10. And in so doing, he would destroy Satan. So here's another question. Could Christ destroy Satan before he came as a man? Okay, theoretically, as he's the son of God, God could just wipe out Satan. But that's not the way God wanted to deal with sin and Satan. He wanted to expose Satan. He wanted to meet him on his ground and defeat him fair and square. Could he do that if he wasn't a human being? No. That's why he had to be a human being. Because he came to save who? Human beings from Satan, right? That's why he had to be one of us. And ultimately, of course, he had to reconcile humanity to God. Reconciling humanity to God was only possible when he became a man. And ultimately, to be a compassionate high priest. One who understands and knows what temptations and trials we go through. He had to be a man before he could be a compassionate high priest for humanity, for mankind. And so these are just as, like I said, this is a partial list. None of these things, brothers and sisters, were possible without Christ becoming a man. So as you look at that list, you think, wow, that's very important things. All of a sudden, the humanity of the Son of God means so much, hopefully. Right? That's the whole point of the study this evening. Is to appreciate the humanity of the Son of God. He's one of us. Let's see the effect of that as well. In Hebrews 10.10 it tells us, Because of what he did, by which, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His offering is what sanctifies us according to Paul. Right? And when it says here the body... Uh, it's, this is, that's not just the shell, you know. The body of Christ is the humanity that he linked intrinsically with divinity. It's his death as a human being that sanctifies us. You realize that? And in verse 14, he says it again, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Why? Because that offering was as a human a divine human, but the key emphasis is that he is a human, one of us. He condemns sin in the flesh. So brothers and sisters, let's not keep offering him again and again like the Catholic priests do, right? Once is sufficient. He perfected forever those that are sanctified through the offering of himself that once, that all-sufficient sacrifice. And so of course, because of that, as well, in John 5, 27, he says, speaking of the Father, and hath given him authority, that is, the Father gave the Son authority, to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. What qualifies Christ to be our judge? His humanity. That's what Son of Man means. He is a faithful judge. He knows what everybody goes through. What qualifies him is his humanity. And not only that, but in John 16, verse 7, 
We have this beautiful promise as well. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, this is maybe the topic that we are a bit more familiar with. But something had to happen to Christ as a man before the comforter could come. Up until that time, was the comforter there? Yes or no? When Christ spoke these words, was the comforter there? Listen, look at, look at his words. If, it says, it's expedient that I go away. If I don't go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Christ was referring to something called the comforter that was only possible to come if he left, correct? So here's the question. Was this comforter there when he was speaking to them? No. A definite and resounding no. What's he referring to? He's referring to this life that he will give them after he goes back to heaven as a man and is glorified as a man. And only then, and not before, can he give them this comforter. And so he says to them, it is expedient that I go away. If I stay here on earth with you, this will never come. Isn't that what he's saying? And of course, a little later, of course, is what he refers to it as the other comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. If a man love me, my father will love him. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. That experience of the glorified life of the Son of God, the Son of Man, given into the heart of the believer with all his experiences of dealing with sin, could only come if he went to heaven and was glorified as a man. You with me? Very, very significant, brothers and sisters. And that is why the comforter and the work of the comforter, the life of Christ in the soul, is to inscribe the living law of God in our hearts. That the law of God no longer is written on stone, but is a living reality in our experience, manifest in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our experience. That's the purpose of the comforter. That's the life of the Son being manifest in our mortal flesh. So the law is no longer something that we just refer to as a list written in a book. The law becomes something that we live. Written not with ink, but with what? The Spirit of God. The life of the Son of God. That's what the New Covenant is all about. Just as Christ came to magnify the law and to make it honorable, His life in our hearts is to magnify the law and to make it honorable. Okay, we're almost there. We're still awake. Everyone's still with me? I really think that clock is fast, but I want to make sure everyone's awake. We're almost there, but uh, yeah, I just don't want to lose anyone in the process. We're talking about the importance of the humanity of the Son of God, brothers and sisters. It is everything to us as a people. A lot of these things and promises that Christ made were not possible except if he came as a man and accomplished for man what man needed the most. You see, it was Satan, of course we know, Satan defeated mankind. That's why the defeat of Satan had to be accomplished by mankind, by a man. Satan had taken humanity captive, and to break that captivity, it had to be a human being who would rise up and take on the devil and defeat him. 
That's why Christ came down into the dominion of Satan, the dominion of death. And as a man, he took on Satan and beat him and game over for Satan and his angels. When, Christ, uh, when Adam was defeated by Satan, <clears throat> he came into bondage. He lost his dominion to Satan. And that's why in the garden when uh, Christ made that promise that uh, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, that's what he was referring to. He was referring to this battle. One day, he said, a human is going to come, Satan, and that human is going to crush you. And that human was going to be the son of God who would condescend and take on humanity for the purpose of crushing Satan. And that promise had so much power in it that it was able to avert the death of Adam and Eve instantaneously. Do you realize that? It was the strength of that promise that allowed Adam and Eve to continue to live this probationary life because Christ had promised that one day he would come. But while they were to live this probationary life, now they were to live as slaves of who? Satan. I want to read some statements so you don't, you know, jump out. What's this brother saying? Notice what it says in Review and Herald here. The fruit of the forbidden tree seemed pleasant to the eye and desirable to the taste. They ate and fell. They transgressed God's just command and became sinners. Satan's triumph was complete. He then had the vantage ground over who? Over the race. So when Adam and Eve fell, Satan had the advantage. He had the vantage ground, it says, over the race. And so Christ made that promise that the seed would come and defeat Satan. On the strength of that promise, that enabled Adam and Eve to still live. But they were now at a disadvantage. Who had the advantage? Satan. And how long would Satan have the advantage? Until that promise of that man who would one day come and face him, until that promise was realized. Let's read the next statement. Signs of the Times. It says, but a refusal to drink this cup, referring to the cup in the garden, Christ here, but a refusal to drink this cup would mean that no human being could be saved. Only by his suffering and death could human beings be placed on vantage ground. Interesting. Only through what? Suffering and death as a man could humanity, human beings, be placed on vantage ground. Let me illustrate this. I like illustrations. Makes it clear in my head. When Adam and Eve sinned, they fell, and Satan had the advantage ground over the race. How long did he hold that vantage ground for? He held it for 4,000 long years, brothers and sisters. Up until the time when Christ came. And when Christ came, and as we said, we just read in the statement earlier, only by his suffering and death could human beings be placed on vantage ground. So he suffered and he died, and he placed humanity on vantage ground. Praise God. We're living, just to remind you, we're living on this side. Right? Where humanity has been given an advantage because Satan has been defeated by a man. Hallelujah. One of us, not some other creature, some other order of beings. One of us has defeated Satan. You realize that? That's the last Adam, 
In so doing, he placed us on vantage ground. There is a lot in that. And so, not only did he become a human in order to do that, brothers and sisters, but he became a human forever. He didn't just become a human to do this and then go back to heaven, take it all off, mission accomplished. In order to do this and for this to be permanent, he had to be a human being permanently, forever. We do not realize or comprehend what that really means. That is an infinite and great sacrifice. That when God gave us his son, he gave us his son to keep, to be a human like us forever and ever and ever and ever after still. You do realize, you do realize that Christ as the divine son of God, he had to give up something in, in order to take on humanity. You realize that? And humanity is not a form that was fit for the dwelling of a divine being, the optimal. In other words, let me put it this way, just so you, just, so you don't misunderstand me. God has a body, right? He has a form, he has a body that is befitting to his divine majesty and glory. His son has a form and has a body, right? That is befitting for the dwelling of him as in divine majesty and glory. He gave up that body. He took on an inferior form, an inferior form forever, just in order to accomplish the salvation of man. I want to read a statement here that really hits me hard every time I read it. Just to give us a little bit of an insight into what we're talking about here in Christ taking on humanity. This is what it says. The race in consequence of sin was at enmity with God. Christ at an infinite cost by a painful process, mysterious to angels as well as to men, assumed humanity. Christ did not put on humanity as a cloak, as an outer layer. Christ intrinsically tied humanity to his divinity in an irreversible process that involved pain in order to save us. You realize that? The pain that's spoken about here is not the pain of the cross. This is before any, this is when he became human, when he became a babe, in order to join his divinity to this humanity, these cells that were placed in the womb of Mary. That mysterious process involved pain for the divine son of God. He's going to have that forever and ever. And he took that in order to, all, to do all these things for you and me, to save us. It was a necessary and incredibly infinite sacrifice. And in so doing, brothers and sisters, he elevated actually humanity. Humanity has so much more worth now. John 1.18, boy, we, our time is running. John 1, 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You familiar with this verse? One time someone asked me about this verse. He said, how could the Son of God be in the bosom of the Father while he was here on earth? Does that mean he was omnipresent? You ever thought about that? Now, the answer is very simple. It's, it's so simple. Uh, but I, I don't know if you wondered about that. Was Christ in the bosom of the Father when he was here on earth? Okay, yes or no? We have some yes, some no. Okay, no, the answer is no, negative. He was on earth, he wasn't in heaven. When did John write the gospel? After Jesus went back to heaven, right? So when John was writing, he's saying, the only begotten son, which is now, where? 
in the bosom of the Father, because Christ was already ascended, right? In the bosom of the Father, when he came to earth, he declared unto us. You with me? Easy, right? No, not that hard. Simple. But notice, the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, is not just the Son of God. He is also what? A human being. Brothers and sisters, humanity now is in the bosom of the Father. You realize that? God has adopted the human family in the person of his son. In Christ becoming a human being, he elevated humanity to a level above any other order of beings in the entire universe. On the throne of God, next to God the Father, there is a human being sitting. Not an angel, not some other creature. A human, one of us is sitting there. You know what that does to humanity? That's what John's talking about here. In Christ becoming a human and coming down so low for us, when he is lifted up, he lifts all of us up with him. That's why the humanity of the Son of God is everything to us as a people. Christ has made us the most distinguished race in the entire universe. Let that sink into your mind a little bit. In the ceaseless ages of eternity in the future, the most distinguished race forever in the whole universe is our race. You realize that? Wow. You know, sometimes we think we want to be angels, or angels have six wings, or four wings, or two wings, and, and all these different orders of creatures. Why, why wasn't I made to fly? You know, when we're kids, we think about that, or we talk about that. We have something, because what Christ, when Christ took on humanity, he did something to our race. We barely comprehend. You realize that? We barely comprehend. Hopefully tonight, maybe, maybe we can comprehend it a little better. That there is a human who shares the throne of the universe with the Father. Higher than the heavens is what Christ did for us. That's why Paul says, we're seated together with Christ in heavenly places. What's he talking about? We have a representative sitting on the throne. In other words, we as believers, we have that high and exalted privilege. You can't get a higher place in the universe than the throne of God. Can you? That's where we are. Amen. If we really realize that, we'd probably be jumping up and down for joy and get mistaken for Pentecostals. Or We'd do something, wouldn't we, brothers and sisters? Amen. Amen. I want to close with this practical part. Give it maybe five minutes or so. We'll just close with this practical part as to what all this means to us. Hopefully this highlights the fact that Christ as a human means everything to us now. Okay, well, hopefully that illustrates for us the importance of Christ's humanity. A little bit, perhaps. There's a lot more. We can, we can only scratch the surface. But uh, I think the other night we read this verse where Christ talked about the new covenant when he gave the cup of, uh, of, of that drink to his disciples and he says, you know, take drink. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. You remember that? In my blood. The New Testament is in the blood, in the life of the Son of God, slash Son of Man. That's His life. He gives that to us. So when we receive His life, we receive the divine human life of the Son. That divine human life of the Son was something that for ages upon ages, people looked forward to. Now we have it, because He already has come 
as a man. This is the active ingredient of the new covenant. Christ said it, but Paul says it as well. Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 16 and 17. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. What's that talking about? So long as Christ was alive and doesn't die, the testament is what? Not of force, right? The power, the active ingredient for the new covenant was the life of the Son of Man when He came and died. Now, when I say Son of Man, you know what I mean. It's not just a human, but it is combined with divinity. That blend of humanity and divinity had never, ever happened before. Not the way Christ did it. And when He came and did it, He thereby activated and empowered this new covenant. That's why I said, take drink. This is the new covenant in my blood, in my life. And that's why it says here, there is a necessity for the death of the testator in order for that testament to be a force. Now, what am I saying? Does that mean the new covenant was not available in the Old Testament? The new covenant was there by promise. It was promised to all these people. But the force and the power of the new covenant came when Christ came in a measure that was never seen before. You realize that? That's why he told them, listen, if I stay with you, this comforter is never going to come. I must go. I must take this human life that I've now perfected. I must take that to heaven. And when it's taken to heaven and honored and exalted and glorified, then I'm going to send it back to you. And you're going to see something that you've never seen before. And what happened? The day of Pentecost, an event that was never seen in the history of the earth. You realize that? Never. Why? Because now Christ has come. He has become our life in a way that was only promised in the past. Hebrews 13.20, therefore, based on that, Hebrews 13.20 admonishes us. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And the next verse says, make you perfect according to his will. How is that possible now? Through the blood? And what's another word for blood? Life. Through the life of the everlasting covenant. That's the life of the Son of God, the Son of Man. That is what makes us perfect. That is how he has forever sanctified his brethren. That is how he has perfected us. All these things, brothers and sisters, Christ accomplished as a man for mankind. Hallelujah. The blood of the everlasting covenant. And it's this blood, this life of the everlasting covenant. That is what gives us access into the presence of God. This is our last verse. I'll close with this one. And this will sum it up really well for us. That is not the verse. It's okay. I'll just go back. And it is... Uh, is it not there? Okay, maybe it's not there. You have your Bibles? Let's open our Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 
and 20. This beautiful, beautiful verse. It says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by what? The blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. What's that talking about? His humanity. His humanity now gives us access into the very presence of God with boldness. Not with timidity. Not with fear. Not with doubt. But with boldness, we can go into the very presence of God because one of us is sitting on the throne. His name is? Is Jesus. This is a very, very powerful verse. This entrance, brothers and sisters, into the holiest through that blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the life of Jesus. When was the blood of Jesus shed? At the cross, right? And remember, I think we established well, it was at one event, not all the time ongoing before and after, right? It was one event, one sacrifice forever. Through that, he perfected. Through the sacrifice, because of his sacrifice as a human being, we now have access into the holiest. That was something that no human being could access before. You realize that? To really appreciate the force of what Paul is saying here, I want us to put it in contrast with what is now available, in contrast with what was not available. No human being could access the holiest. No human being could access or enter the sanctuary before the Son of God came and died. You realize that? I'm getting some very thoughtful looks from everyone. That's what the verse says, right? Look at it. How do we enter? This new and living way is through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh. That's what gives us entrance. When did he take on flesh? When he came as a man. Could we enter before he took on flesh? We had a sin problem that had to be dealt with. Humanity's sin problem has been dealt with in the person of Christ. He took humanity into the very presence of God, thereby now giving us access direct with boldness to the very presence of God. You with me? This was something that was not possible so long as Christ was not a human being. It was not possible before his blood was shed. Because it says here, we enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Christ as a man for mankind gives us access to the highest heavens. I pray that will sink into our minds and we can grasp a hold of that as we should. Because Christ has done all this for us as a man. I want to end with this thought. I want, to, I want you to contemplate this thought. The thought that is found in this verse. <clears throat> what we're talking about here when we talk about Christ in the holiest, through his sacrifice, through his flesh, all these aspects have to do with Christ now as our high priest. Right? He's our high priest. He's the high priest of humanity. We talk a lot about the sanctuary doctrine and as Adventists we believe the sanctuary doctrine is a pillar of our faith. That is very true. That is very good. But the sanctuary doctrine is not just about a building in heaven. Very significant. I want to keep that in mind because sometimes we get so caught up in arguing over a building or no building and I fully believe there is a sanctuary in heaven. I'm not trying to do away with it indirectly. There is definitely a, a building in heaven, I believe, a, a sanctuary. 
But this is not the, the, the import of the sanctuary doctrine. The import of the sanctuary doctrine is our high priest that inhabits the sanctuary, that gives us access to that sanctuary. What good is a sanctuary without a priest? What good is a building in heaven to you and me if there is no human priest in it to give us access? The strength and the power of the sanctuary doctrine is the humanity of the Son of God. You realize that? Because he's a priest as a human being. That is why the humanity of the Son of God is everything to us as a people. It links us to his divinity, to eternal life. I pray that the Lord will uh, open these things to our minds more and more. Let's close with a word of prayer. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.